Hello, internet friends, and welcome to Love Hate Relationship, an opinionated podcast for opinionated people. I'm Andy Boel. And I'm Alex Ruiz, and as ever, we are here to brighten your days, anger your souls, and tell you how to live your lives in that order. And Andy. Alex. I told you before we started recording that I had a douchebag buffer that I wanted to surprise you with. That sure happened. You nervous? The way you're smiling, I'm getting nervous. Uh. The Biden student loan oh, apparatus. Are God. you familiar with the latest news on this? Uh, I think I saw a tweet the night before time of recording that was saying something about how a fucking federal judge is going to try to overturn the debt relief. So I feel very comfortable talking about this and this douchebag buffer, even though I know that this episode will not come out for probably a month and a half because uh-huh. I doubt it will be fixed by then. Sure. A Texas judge. Oh, well, God, you, you, you didn't need to specify. I'm sure I knew where he came from. A Texas judge has halted the Biden student loan relief effort because of a lawsuit filed by the Job Creators Network Foundation a conservative group in Texas, on behalf of two borrowers who did not qualify for debt relief. The argument is that this student loan bailout that we have that we have going on is, quote, doing nothing to address the root cause of unaffordable tuition, greedy and bloated colleges that raise tuition far more than inflation, year after year while sitting on $700 billion in endowments. That is the statement from the Job Creators Network Foundation, that that is the basis of this lawsuit. I mean, yes, sure, you, you're, you haven't lost me yet. And so because of that, on that premise, a lawsuit filed by two borrowers who did not qualify mm-hmm. for the debt relief program... And, I mean, there are several reasons why someone would not qualify for it. For instance, if all their loans are private or if they make too much money because it is stupidly means tested. Mm. Any number of these reasons. The whole fucking thing is blocked until this court case can be heard and probably appealed. It'll, it very well could end up in front of the Supreme Court. So, to, to be clear here, the argument is this relief measure doesn't address the problem, really. It just handles the symptom. So we shouldn't do it, thereby doing nothing about the symptom or the problem. But we can all say we did. And then in five fucking years when the Supreme Court says, you know what, we've changed our mind and and student loan forgiveness is unconstitutional... Y'all have to pay all your fucking money. We can look back fondly on how the Biden administration tried to do something. Oh, but you're forgetting one point. The Biden administration's rule wherein the moratorium on student loan payments ends at the end of 2022. Right. That is still, at least as of this recording, which is November the 12th, that moratorium ending as of recording is still... In effect. Yeah, no, so it's going to be pay pay your student loan piggy, and we're going to dangle the carrot of maybe some debt forgiveness, and then in five, six years, that carrot is going to have its string cut, and it's going to fall in the garbage. Never minding that another part of this program is something that I was actually very excited about, which was the capping of student loan payments at 10% of your adjusted monthly income. 
which for me is a huge fucking deal because at my income level, I would probably be paying three or four hundred dollars a month in my student loan payments, possibly more. Yeah. Um, to say nothing of what my wife is paying. To cap it at 10% would put that much at a much more manageable, probably, you know, I, I don't want to get into the income extrapolations, but it would be under $200 a month. Sure. Which is not nothing, but it's a hell of a lot better than three or $400 a month. So. So you're telling me we live in hell and nothing actually ever gets better. Yeah. Welcome to America. Welcome to America. The most I, I say that, and, and my brain desperately clings to something to be optimistic about. The red wave didn't happen as much as people thought it would. Mm. But we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that later in the episode. But sure. Yeah. God, fucking damn it. Yeah. I um. I I wanted to mention this here. We've talked about student loans on this podcast. It was a hate topic that you brought up. It's something that comes up yeah. with some regularity. Um, and you know what? I I don't think we have any listeners who don't agree with us that student loans are goddamn fucking bullshit. Um, I, I know we have a few listeners who think that the Biden plan was a really, really good thing. And, you know, I have said this. You have said this to a certain degree. I don't think it went far enough. The idea that this conservative... And, and let's be clear. The Job Creators Network Foundation doesn't actually give a shit about addressing college tuition bloat. No. They want to stop student loan forgiveness. Yeah. That is the premise on which this is founded. Um, and if this goes to a Supreme Court case, um, the issue kind of comes down to the fact that regardless of logic, we deal, we're deal we dealing with a Supreme Court that has shown that it doesn't actually care about anything that either a will help people or really to a certain degree even constitutionality because clarence thomas doesn't give a fuck yes because samuel alito gives just enough of a fuck to manipulate things in the way that he thinks should work and the way that he thinks should work is some fucking silent generation why don't we have segregation anymore bullshit Ginny Thomas probably owes a lot of January 6th people money, and I wouldn't be surprised if somehow she gets that through a student loan repayment company. It it basically... How do I put this delicately? Um, we should not be surprised that this happened. We should not be surprised that this news came out literally like the week of the election, yeah. but after the election. Because I guarantee you, there were people who were really, really psyched about the fact that the Biden administration did this. It is going to legitimately help people if it ever fucking goes through. But if you fuck with it, you drive out even more of the young vote, of the people who are like, no, I fucking need this to fucking survive. Sure. Even. So let's be clear. If the Biden administration had put as part of this bill or this executive order some kind of cap on tuition, maybe tying tuition to uh, inflation, for example, which is an idea that's been floated here and there, 
anything or or let's just even say broader endowments to bring down tuition of public universities which is a moderate centrist easy democrat move that they've been too cowardly to even fucking do let's say it did include some of that something that did quote unquote address the problem of student loan tuition or or of college tuition there still would have been this lawsuit there still would have been this fucking premise yeah sure like it's it's I bring this up at the start of the episode because this is an episode that's going to be very up and down. We're going to have, like, this is gonna, this episode's going to be mournful and angry. And I don't even know what our question is because Andy just picked it before this episode started. And didn't tell you. Uh, didn't tell me about it. So I don't know what kind of episode we're going to have here, but I think there's going to be a lot of mixed emotions. And so I think I wanted to start us off on a place of just, like, this is where we are currently standing. And it's fucked we're just off of the midterms as of this recording. And, you know, the midterms weren't great. They weren't as bad as we thought they would be in a lot of ways, but they weren't great. And then this news pops in, and it's just a reminder that we're constantly going to get beaten down. I mean, yeah, because, like, next you're going to tell me that, like, weed will be legalized, but they'll come up with some fucking gotcha loophole contrivance where they can still arrest people of color for it. Like that, at this point, I flat out fucking expect that. Yeah. I, I think that actually exists in a few places where it's like you can have it for personal consumption, but you can't have it to sell. And you can be, um, and they still maintain the laws of a certain, if you have a certain amount that right. it's considered with intent to sell. Because obviously more than this wouldn't be for personal consumption because <sighs> nobody knows how fucking weed smoking works. Right. So, you know, it can happen probably happen it's a fucked system we should you know do what we can against it but we also need to be aware of this shit um bottom line uh if you hadn't already applied for your student loan forgiveness i don't know when you're going to get to be able to because they've halted those applications oh jesus christ okay yeah so well bottom line i've said it before i'll say it again grab a brick <laughs> Should we start the episode? Welcome to Love-Hate Relationship. Um, normally we don't get this heated in the first 10 minutes, but we do make a habit of spending the first couple minutes of every episode talking about you know a, a random topic to kind of ease us and you, the listeners, in. Uh, but then one of us talks about something we love, the other talks about something we hate, and we take yours in the Internet's relationship questions and provide our perfectly unqualified advice. And Alex, I've got the love. You've got the love. I've got the love. And listeners, if you are at all plugged into comics or animation or or really anything nerdy, uh, you probably recognize the title of the love. This was going to be a love no matter which one of us did it. Um, today is November the 12th. And yesterday, November the 11th, no, yesterday, November the 11th, we learned that we lost actor Kevin Conroy. <sighs> For those of you who are unaware, Kevin Conroy was the voice of Batman. Mm -hmm. That is predominantly what he is known for i i'll talk about it a little bit more he, he was much more than the voice of Batman but for most of our lives mm -hmm. 
starting in 1992. I think I think literally Batman came out like a month before I was born. It was like 91 or 92. Yeah. yeah. Um, Kevin Conroy voiced Bruce Wayne and Batman in various DC animated properties and just was synonymous with being Batman. Beyond that, he was an incredible human being. Yeah. This... His passing, not to minimize the passing of any other beloved people, hurts more than I can remember a celebrity passing since, for me personally, David Bowie, Robin Williams. Mm -hmm. Fun fact. Um, I don't know if you knew this. Kevin Conroy was Robin Williams' roommate at Juilliard. I did know that. I yeah. think, yeah, I recall this. Yeah, they, I, I, I love that story. They were in the same class. I think um, Kelsey Grammer was also in that class. Um, but literally, Kevin Conroy and Robin Williams were fucking roommates in college. God, that's a fucking... Like, I want to go back in time and make that a show. Well, and the funny thing is, like, you know, Kevin Conroy was... So everyone will know him best as Bruce Wayne and Batman from the Bruce Tim Batman the Animated Series. He came from stage acting. Sure. Like that was he was in the touring production of Death Trap. He did shitloads of Shakespeare. Um he did a little bit of TV here and there, but like he he came from that world of stage, and that was what Andrea Romano was really looking for when she was casting Batman the Animated Series. Mm -hmm. So, I, I, I don't want to step on your topic, but can we talk a little bit just specifically about the anim Batman the Animated Series and his performance in it? Of course, and, and I think that's going to be the bulk of it, but before that, just to... just I The, the, the point of this love is to honor... Kevin Conroy, you know, to, to say our piece about it. And I just want to make sure to do that by, by talking about as much about the man himself as possible up front. So Kevin Conroy was born November 30th, 1955 in Westbury, New York, um, to an Irish Catholic family. And, and as you say, you know, never really left the New York tri-state area yeah. professionally. He's, he's one year younger than my mother. Or was one year younger than my mother. Yeah. Sorry. Continue. No, I, just, I, I didn't. I didn't realize what year he was born. Fair enough, man. I, I completely get it. No, yeah. At, at time of recording, he, he passed at the age of sixty six from intestinal cancer. That I don't think anybody was even really aware that he was no. going through. No, he looked fine. I've seen. I, I saw pictures and clips on like TikTok and shit from him at like Comic Cons last year yeah. and. He looks old, but he looks fine. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we can we can make connections everywhere, but it's just coming to me now. My dad is a survivor of intestinal cancer. Oh shit! I didn't so know that. yeah, um, so this uh, a brilliant man. Um, I don't recall when or if this was a big thing, but I feel like. It was not too long ago that he publicly came out as being a gay man. Yes, he did that, um, I think, just a few years ago. Yeah. Uh, 
when did Finding Batman came out come out? That was the, the, book the beginning wrote. of the fucking year is when Finding Batman came out. For those of you who don't know, Finding Batman uh, DC did a Pride yeah. special yeah. and had Kevin Conroy as a writer for a a short story called Finding Batman, which is about the man's personal experience with getting the role of Bruce Wayne and like struggling with whether or not he should do it and discovering the voice yeah. and just it clicking into place and becoming a a cornerstone of any nerd's childhood. Yeah. But he lived in New York City in the late 70s yeah. during the AIDS epidemic. He went to those funerals and he, and he talked about that um, in, in a few of his later interviews that he went to so many funerals during that time. Of course. And, you know, he was, he was a gay man living in New York City at the height of disco. Incredibly important to queer youth mm-hmm. to be able to know that one of the greatest superheroes in, if not period one of the greatest superheroes in animation Mm -hmm. was voiced by a gay man yeah by all accounts just a incredibly phenomenal human being i've got a a, you know a well-known story about that later yeah um but yeah so so the the biggest thing the thing that he is known for like i said is voicing bruce wayne slash batman in the Bruce Tim verse and and would go on to voice him in in several other you know movies. This this was Bruce Wayne. Yeah. Appreciate the help, Doc. I'll return the favor next time you're raising funds. Bye bye. This computer checked that fiber against every animal species known to man. And talking about his performance, like, and he admits this. Like he was he went in for the audition. For Batman the Animated Series. And he'd never really done much voice acting work. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, Andrea Romano had put out this casting call for stage actors to do this shit. He'd never really read the comics. He he knew the Adam West TV show. Like, that was the most experience he had with it. But he uh, sat there after, after getting the role. And he was sitting there with Bruce Timm. Um, kind of going over the character and learning about him and understanding him. And he's sitting here going like, okay, so by day he's supposed to be this like playboy businessman. And by night he's a crusader for justice. Oh, this is, this is the Scarlet Pumpernickel mm-hmm. or the, what is it? The Scarlet Pumpernickel? Pumpernickel? It's, the Scarlet, it's the Scarlet Pumpernickel. Okay. I, I never remember what the yeah, second word is. Um, but that's, you know, that is an old story. Um, you know, it's like a Robin Hood adaptation thing. Funny enough, it was by all accounts an early influence on the character. Uh, Bob Kane used to talk about how that was an influence on how he created it. This aristocrat during the French Revolution who saved people from uh, the guillotine by night. And, but by day, he was this foppish court member. Yeah. Um, and that was part of the duality there. And Kevin Conroy, who is, you know... A student of acting and loved old movies, loved old Hollywood, loved old theater, mm-hmm. kind of took that reference point and used it to do something that we kind of take for granted with the character of Batman. Sure. Which is Batman is the real person. Bruce Wayne is the mask. Bruce Wayne 
He would play Bruce Wayne with this higher voice. It, it's much more... I'm going to ask you to do a drop where you compare like a Bruce Wayne just yeah. casually talking and a Batman Absolutely. bit of dialogue. But Batman is down here. He's not, it's not the Christian Bale It's thing. not the Christian Bale. It's not the ungargling gravel, but it is a, a deepening and, yeah. a, and a growling... A, a subtle growling in the throat, which yeah. makes a completely different voice. It's brilliant. Yeah, and it's just and 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 it, you know what? That even evolved over the time that he was doing the voice because you listen to early Batman the animated series, and he's like Alfred, I'm tired, and you get to later ones, and he's just like gruffer, and he's he's still he I, I can't do these voices, sure. but but it's 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 less of that and more of a hmm, authoritative. <laughs> but Bruce Wayne. Bruce Wayne is still like nice and light and lilting and, yeah. and all of this. And he created that. He brought that to bear because Bruce Wayne and Batman in the Adam West adaptations, those voices, eh, in the old radio plays, they were basically the same voice. Sure, they said different shit, but they were basically the same. Even Keaton, who everyone forgets, was the baseline point for Batman the Animated Series. They were capitalizing off of Batman fucking Returns. Mm. Even the way Keaton played Bruce Wayne... Keaton played Bruce Wayne like a dork. Yeah, right. Like, and and Batman is, like, more serious, quote-unquote, but, like... It's it, still camp. Yeah, it's still got a lot of camp to it. But he didn't do different voices, really. Conroy introduced this idea, not just of different voices, but... What's the line from um, Batman Beyond where Bruce has been getting these psychic visions talking to him and it's like, Bruce, do this, Bruce, do that. And he's like, I knew it wasn't me because that's not what I don't call in my head. I don't call myself Bruce. Right. What do you call yourself? And Bruce just gives Terry the sly look. He's like, that's my name now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's I, all Conroy. It's all Conroy. It. it a lot of people kind of have an argument about who is the best Joker. And yeah. I can remember doing this in high school. Who's who's the best Joker? Oh, it's Heath Ledger. He's transcendent. Oh, it's Jack Nicholson. He's classic. And you'd always have the contrarian assholes like me who go, guys, the best Joker is Mark goddamn Hamill. Yeah. The cartoon Joker. Yeah. Head and shoulders. And, and truly, I feel like... I feel like there weren't so many arguments about who is the best Bruce Wayne because there wasn't any fucking argument in anybody's head that Kevin Conroy was a better Bruce Wayne Batman than Kilmer or Clooney or Keaton. A lot of alliteration. Some people say Bale. I don't, I'm not mad at people saying Bale like as a favorite on-screen yeah. adaptation. That's fucking fine. Okay. But Conroy, man. Again, literally, literally, I've, I've, I've looked this up. I said most of our lives, our entire goddamn lives, Kevin Conroy was playing Batman. The show premiered early 1992. I was a toddler. I, I was, you know, an infant. And, and Conroy's final roles as Batman was respectively in TV 2018 where it was the last time he voiced him in a animated series 2019 was the last time he played batman for a film role um and 2022 was the last time he voiced bruce slash batman for a video game property 
a game called Multiverses just came out, and it's basically Super Smash Brothers for Warner Brothers property. Batman is in this game. You can have Batman fight LeBron James. It's very strange. That's weird. Conroy was the Batman voice. Something that gets talked about a lot for comic book fans is what is the voice of the character when you hear them in your head? Sure. And I've and I've said before, like if I read a Joker story, even if it's an old Joker story, like I've read Batman number one in digital in digital format, but I've read Batman number one, which is famously the first appearance of the Joker. Right. Um, you know, Batman as a character originated in Detective Comics and then got his own book. Joker was the first one there. I read that one, and even in that campy, shitty 1940s Silver Age dialogue, I read Mark Hamill. Sure. And even in that campy, shitty 1940s dialogue for Batman, I read Conroy. Conroy's voice is Batman's voice in my head. So much so that whenever I watch a different animated Batman with a different voice actor, it takes me a second. Yeah, famously, um, not famously, we have been watching the Young Justice cartoon. Yeah, which they, have, they have a different Batman in they, that. They have Bruce Greenwood, who I, I adore as an actor. Bruce Greenwood is their Batman, and I, I posit to you and the listeners that Greenwood is doing a Conroy impersonation. You know what? That's not far off base. Yeah. Troy Baker's Joker is definitely a Mark Hamill impression. Yeah. I uh, the only other Batman, the only other voice actor who's really taken the Batman mantle and done something different with it that I respect is Diedrich Bader. Right. And Diedrich Bader's Batman, Diedrich Bader voices Batman in comedies. He voices Batman in Batman: The Brave and the Bold, which you know has some serious moments, but is overall a fairly lighthearted. He, a fairly lighthearted affair. He voices Batman in the Harley Quinn show. That is a funny-ass Batman. Yeah. That is a hilarious Batman. But Conroy's Batman was always the serious Batman. Yeah. When DC wanted to turn the killing joke into a movie, you know, arguably... I, I know you have side opinions about this, but <laughs> arguably the most well-known joker story ever it is considered a very big deal yes they got conroy for a bad movie by the way that was a bad adaptation the the movie that showed us that bruce tim is maybe a piece of shit yeah but what are you gonna do yeah um so no it's just it, it, it it can't be overstated enough how how fundamental kevin conroy the man was as being bruce wayne Slash Batman, the character. I, I've long since fallen off of the WB Arrowverse shows. Same. Green Arrow, The Flash, Batwoman, all that shit. But I do know they did a Crisis of Infinite Earths TV event, which I'm told is like, in the sense of like, they're pulling a bunch of characters from everywhere and doing alternate realities and stuff. It's fine. Mm-hmm. And they had Conroy play Bruce Wayne, live action. It's kind of a kingdom come Bruce way wearing the armor suit, but they like, they were like, no, you, you, Kevin Conroy, show your face and be Bruce Wayne. I would watch those YouTube clips. Yeah, I would, I, I, I haven't would seen that those. out and find that. <laughs> I would, I would look for that. Oh God. He was a special, incredibly special, incredibly like beloved and well-known person. And we mentioned Hamill. I think a lot of people could probably talk about Hamill in the same breath. 
Hamill even more so because Hamill's Luke fucking Skywalker. Well, and Hamill famously said when it came to like DC properties, it got to the point where someone would come to him and ask if he would work on a Joker voice or something like that. And he would go, is Kevin working on it? Right. If Kevin is working on it, I'm there. If Kevin's not working on it, maybe send me the script. Maybe I'll consider it. But if Kevin's on, don't even send me the script. I, I'm on. I'm in. I'm in. Which is a, a testament to the, the friendship and character. I I know the internet is going to lose its mind and it is going to be an incredibly dark day for a lot of people when Mark Hamill passes. Mm-hmm. And in a way, not to, not to compare something morbid, but in a way I find Conroy to be maybe even more like special in a way Mm. when mark hamill passes you're going to have people who are talking about oh my god luke skywalker you're gonna have other people talking about oh my god the joker you're gonna have other people talking about guys 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 he was a prolific video game comic voice actor and like all this other shit with kevin conroy like he just it's it's batman yeah there's a um, there's a wonderful story. Uh, I actually posted about it on the LHR account, sort of in our memoriam post of the man. But it's it's a story about Kevin Conroy in the immediate post 9/11, going and volunteering and basically being like working the the food service yeah. line. He- Kevin, so Kevin Conroy lived in New York City, and it was there during 9-11, and he went to go see if he could help out. He's yeah. just an actor. Yeah. But he went, and he's like, okay, what can I what can I do? Like, he's not a first responder, but he went and basically went to see what services he could provide, and they were like, hey, we need people to cook. They're like, oh, we need, there's there's these kitchens we have open for people who, you know, are based, can't go home for the first responders. Do you, do you have food service experience? He's like, I'm an actor in New York. Of course I have food experience. <laughs> right. And, and I don't want to retell the story. I would rather people seek it out online, go find it on our Twitter. The, the point is there's, there's a bit where somebody recognizes his voice and it becomes a, a big commotion that, oh my God, guys, Batman's serving your food. And he does the Batman voice from the back of the kitchen and the crowd goes wild and he helps lifts people's spirits. Yeah. But then the, the man who first recognized him you know, later on asks him, what's it like to be Santa Claus? Because that's what you are right now. Because that's what you are right now. And that's what Kevin Conroy was. Yeah. And, you know, Mark Hamill told... Mark Hamill posted about this. Um, and Rob Paulson did too, actually. Yeah, yeah. About how, you know, they went to so many conventions with Kevin Conroy. And he never got tired of it. People... Rob Paulson talked about how he would, he would go to these conventions and he'd see people come over from three or four states over, different countries even. And they'd stand in line for hours to meet Kevin Conroy. It didn't matter how many times someone asked. Like, he would do the voices. He would do the I am vengeance, I am the knights thing. And grown men and women just, like, crying. Because that's what this character meant to them. Yeah. Everyone, we, we talked about this when we did the James Bond episode. Everyone has their James Bond. Maybe it's the one you grew up with, 
or if you had a parent who introduced you to a thing, maybe like they introduce that to you and that becomes your version of James Bond. Every, everyone has their James Bond. And I'd argue everyone has their Batman. And for you and me, that was the animated series. And that was Kevin Conroy. Kevin Conroy was our Batman. He belonged to our generation. And he continued that work. And I think through the video games, he kind of became Gen Z's Batman to a yeah. certain extent. I mean, you can maybe argue Bale or for for even younger people, maybe Pattinson will replace that. But for our for millennials and maybe elder Gen Z kids, it's Kevin Conroy. And he and the thing is, not only did we love him, he loved us. Yeah, he loved to bring that joy to people. He loved to he, he again. He would do that. I'm pretty sure he did that fucking thing. That fucking I am vengeance line 30 times a day for the last 30 or four for the last 30 some odd years. Yeah, I almost guarantee it's more. Yeah, like he he did it so much and he was never tired of doing it. He did it with his full. He did it with his whole chest every single time because he knew that for some people, that's the only chance they would ever get to hear that kind of thing. Yeah. And. I want to I want to pivot this now to Conroy the person. The most the most important thing about that story regarding what he did for 9/11 to me is the fact that he wanted to show up and just do whatever he could. Yeah. And it was more than enough to be working in the for the you know the food service line in the relief kitchen. Yeah. For people Beyond that, he found a way that he could do more. He could make people smile and, and cheer the week after 9-11 yeah. by doing the voice. The man did what he could. You've, you've stated it so eloquently. The man loved the people who loved him and always had time for his fans. I'm reminded of Chadwick Boseman. Mm-hmm. who also passed from cancer without mm-hmm. it being made public yeah and thinking about the idea that right up until he literally could not go out anymore doing media appearances being there for fans and it dawns on me why Kevin Conroy probably didn't make a big announcement mm-hmm. about having intestinal cancer yeah because it would distract from his ability to show up at the East Coast Comic Con and talk to people and shake hands and do the voice. Yeah. He was doing appearances earlier this year. Yeah. And frankly, you don't get to the point of death with intestinal cancer quickly enough yeah. that this was sudden. He was absolutely doing that sick. Yeah. And that's it's a testament to his love for this. Yeah. Um, something I don't think a lot of people know about. I remember this from an old interview he did on Kevin Smith's podcast. Um, he was an addict. Oh, he I was know he, he was he was an alcoholic. Mm. Um, and by his own admission, you know, he he stopped drinking. Um, he said this. He he said um, playing Batman helped him get sober. Something about wrestling with that duality. And those personal demons in the character helped guide him in his recovery. 
And, you know, for most of the last 20 some odd years, he was completely sober. But he had a severe alcohol problem. He came from a bad family. Sure. He came from a really, really bad family. He had he dealt with a lot of physical abuse. Um, and, and the thing is, he talked about this back then, but we didn't know he was gay back then. Right. I can't imagine that didn't factor into some things. Absolutely, yeah. And so, you know, he's, he's a story of a person who came from a lot of darkness and found art, found beautiful art, and became someone who, who was associated with people we value. Again, he's lifelong friends with Robin Williams. When Robin Williams died, Kevin Conroy told stories and talked about it because they stayed friends the rest of their the rest of Robin Williams' life. Yeah. Because Robin Williams never forgot a fucking friend. And now that Kevin Conroy's passed, we literally have Rob Paulson, Mark Hamill, Tara Strong, Andrea Romano, Andrea Romano, Paul Dini, yeah. like all these people who knew him and loved him and worked with him. Phil Lamar came out and talked about it like all of these people everyone who ever worked with kevin conroy talked about what a wonderful person he was and what a goddamn professional he was and what a talent he was so yeah you get this person who finds art and art is his way out of a terrible situation he finds a city that he lives in he moves to los angeles for a little while in the early 80s he's on a couple of soap operas um, but he lived in New York City after that, and he lived privately. He had a, he had a private life. He was married when he passed away. No, I don't think any of us knew that really, yeah. or at least if we did know it, um, I don't think we knew it until he came out. Right. But he lived this very private life filled with a lot of demons. But he didn't burden anyone with his demons. He dealt with them. He used his art to deal with them as well. Yeah. And at the end of the day, all he wanted to do was be an artist. And make people happy. Which is a lofty goal for all of us to strive for. So, yeah, I mean, I, listener, you may or may not be a comic nerd. Odds are you probably skew that way, but you, you may not. Um, odds also skew that you grew up watching Batman the Animated Series or have played the Arkham uh, Batman games. If for some reason this is how you are finding out, I recommend honoring the man in any way you can, any way you feel appropriate. Find the cartoons, find anything he's done. Honor him, remember him. Kevin Conroy was a hero. Kevin Conroy, the man, was a hero. I, I say that with my whole chest. And he will be dearly, dearly missed. I am vengeance. I am the knight. I am Batman. So with that, that, that was our happy topic. That was our love. Uh, you want to get a... You want to get mad? Uh, yeah, you know, this is gonna. So this is gonna tie in nicely with the cold open. Uh, okay, Andy, I'm just gonna start off simple here. Um, 
Tell me what you know, even if it's just a definition or if it's examples, of what gerrymandering is, means, the whole, whatever you have to say on the subject. So my understanding of of gerrymandering is it is the, like, practice of accumulating and dividing census, taking a population and divvying divvying it up in a way that makes it manageable to collate, usually for voting purposes, um, but is kind of random and backwards in the way that, like, a district can get drawn up Mm. and can be... You take a map and you draw this bizarre little squiggle, cut a circle in the middle to avoid a certain part of town, but get this other part of town down here kind of way. And you say, okay, that's District 13. And then a discerning uh, individual might go, that, that circle you cut around is where all the, like, it's it's the predominantly African-American part of town. And you go, oh, and, that's, and then you stop, and you, and you don't do anything about that. Uh, so, so yeah, gerrymandering is, and God, I hopefully you can tell me the reason we used to need to do it in the first place, but it is, it is the way that you, like, geographically assign people to a, a, a district, to a, a, a section of land in which then their votes count for elections. That is not at all a bad way to explain it. Um, So I'm going to show you something, Andy, and I'm going to put a link to this in the show notes. Um, The term gerrymandering, um, it's it's unclear where exactly it came from. Okay. But... Um, there's something I want to show you. This is a political cartoon from 1812. I'm literally handing Andy a laptop at this point. This is a political cartoon from 1812 called The Gerrymander. Can you? And I'll put a link in the show notes. Please look at it. It's just a link to the Wikipedia PNG file. Um, but can you describe briefly what you see in this cartoon? Yeah, so it's, it is some section of land. I'm trying to figure out... It's a map. It's a map, but I'm trying to figure out a map of what exactly. It probably like it looks like some portion of England or something. Um, it's a map of southern England, let's say, and there's all the different little state line, city line, whatever, and you've got Gloucester and Manchester and Newbury and Ipswich and Hamilton, and Danvers and Lynn, and Chelsea, blah 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 blah. And like this map is is roughly square shaped. Obviously, real geometry of of land is making it look differently. But all along the leftmost topmost quadrant, it has been colored in to look like this sort of vulture dragon looking thing which which is the gerrymander for the cartoon so you have this map and only along the left and top sections they're colored in which i assume is to say that the left and top sections and the cities they're in are a district mm-hmm. that's exactly right 
So the obvious idea being that this weird vulture monster is the gerrymander. Right. And it's, you know, it's, it's 1812 political humor. What, what, what are you going to do with it? Um, so this is a political cartoon um, that's actually... So the map is actually of uh, South Essex Camp County uh, in Massachusetts. Okay. This was 1812, right. um, and it's kind of just satirizing the bizarre shape of an actual district in Essex County, Massachusetts. And, you know, it, it was basically... It, it, it's, sat it's satirizing the whole, what is this fucking ridiculous shape that you see here? So, um... And, and that's kind of the, the illustrative point here. So if we're going to talk about gerrymandering, the first thing I have to talk about is how we draw districts in the first place. Sure. So um, I didn't mention this during our, you know, uh, constitution conversation, but the way that it works is electoral districts, which we use in order to determine how we elect our representatives in the House of Representatives, mm -hmm. one of the two houses of Congress. Those districting lines get redone about every 10 years um, after the what's called the decennial census. So the census happens every four years. Right. Um, every 10 years, we do this redistricting. The idea essentially being that with changes in the census, population-wise, we should probably make adjustments to our electoral map. Now, you might think, uh, and some people argue this, that the easiest and smartest way to do any kind of district drawing would be to just draw a grid. Yeah. You know. I would think that, as a matter of fact. Yeah. And, like, you can pull up a... Well, you, you can pull up a county map. We live in North Carolina. If you look at the counties, they are, for the most part, pretty, like, square, rectangular. Yeah. Um, when you and I lived in Florida, um, there, there's some of, there's a fair deal of that. Um, there are some that are a little bit longer or shorter, kind of drawn around um, certain coastlines, for example. But there is a logic to the way that we've drawn county lines. Right, and I want to say real quick, I, I recall, because Florida, Orlando specifically, is kind of a funny example, because there's a district in Orlando that, like, it, it, it is the gerrymander. It, it cuts through the city of Orlando, but, like, cuts through this tiny little sliver and then expands at the bottom and goes up and there's a tiny little part in the middle and then cuts back up again. Yeah. It's like a weird kind of fucked up hourglass. Yeah. Like a multi-chamber hourglass type of shape. I know which one you're talking about. Yeah. Um, and that's exactly the kind of thing that sometimes happens with this shit. There is a logic beyond to not just drawing a grid. For example, your grid might mean... If you just draw a straight up grid in, say, Nebraska, you might wind up with a congressional district that is mostly f empty farmland. Right. And then you have a whole... And, and then you have representatives in a space that really should not have representatives. Right. Um, and I'm trying to remember the exact number. Um, how many... We can cut this for time. How many people per representative? 
how much population per representative. So there should be one representative, um, at least one representative per state, and no more than one for every 30,000 people. Mm -hmm. Now, the thing about that is you're never going to cleanly get 30,000 people per representative. It's just not going to happen. It's extra tricky when you get into, say, cities. Right. Which will have, in, you know, some cities have populations in the millions. Yeah, the super cities come to mind. Yeah. L.A., New York. Yeah. So it is a little bit more complicated than just drawing a straight fucking grid, especially because when you get into cities, think about how many people might live in a skyscraper apartment versus living in suburban neighborhoods where it's one family per house. Yeah. You need to mess with that a little bit in order for it to work. That is why we redraw these lines every 10 years. And that's not a bad idea to take the census and redraw this shit every, every so often. You can argue it should be more frequent, less frequent, whatever. It's not the idea of drawing lines so much as the lines we decide to draw. Exactly. And the issue with gerrymandering in the United States is that it will be specifically done in order to increase or decrease the power of a particular political party. Right. So some of the more common examples that you will see in this kind of redistricting might be drawing a district that previously, geographically, let's just say... Uh, encompasses 30% affluent white people and 70% poor black people. Mm -hmm. Very common situation when you get to certain cities because due to redlining and due to the ghettoization of the black population, we physically have cities that are segregated. Boston is actually a really interesting example of this. And historically speaking, Massachusetts was where gerrymandering arguably originated in the United States. Mm. I'm not going to get into that entire history, but the earliest of examples of this go back to the late 1700s. Sure. Specifically in Massachusetts. But Boston, still to this day, is one of the most segregated cities in the United States. Boston is more segregated than many metropolitan areas of the South. For decades, people have called Boston racist for numerous reasons. The Red Sox were the last baseball team to integrate. Bostonians violently resisted desegregation. Even in 2017, fans at Fenway Park called Adam Jones the N-word. A lot of people don't like to talk about that. Interesting, yeah. I yeah. did not know that. So, if you're, say, going by the census, and you're not necessarily thinking about racial demographics when you're drawing this, you might logically go, okay, here is this particular corner of um, the city of Boston, some of which goes into the city and some of which goes into some of the, um, let's say, better off suburbs right on the edge. Mm -hmm. And again, this might be a geographical space where the affluent white neighborhood takes up as 50% or more of the physical landmass of the district if we're just drawing a circle or a square. But because of the population density, 70% of it might be poor black people. 
Right. What happens when those folks vote? Representatives get put up, and the poor black people are probably going to vote for the people who will most represent them. Which means those affluent whites, because they are outvoted, set by 70%, aren't being represented by the people they would want. Right. So inevitably, you get rich white people represented by those who have the interest of poor black people in their hearts. And that is not acceptable to, to rich white people. No, not at all. And so I'm going to go to an example here. Uh, I, I'm picking Florida because you and I are both familiar with it. But actually, if you go onto flsenate.gov, this um, this can be actually pretty illustrative for, for showing what we're talking about. I just tried to look this up for North Carolina, and the website actually isn't as helpful. Oh, you don't say. Yeah, right. Um, but so to just go into four different districts here. The first, like I mentioned, is the Orlando area. And the, the Orlando Central Florida area we're talking about is districts 13 and 15. District 13 literally has like a chunk cut out of the southwest quadrant of the district which District 15 is nestled into. Mm -hmm. So you have Lake County and like North Central Florida and District 13, and you have pretty much the city of Orlando and, you know, surrounding metropolitan area in, in 15. 13 is much bigger than 15. But again, the, the thing to point out is just literally like they cut a swath and when these are two different districts... The other one I want to talk about really quick. Okay. Duval County. You go, <laughs> you go up. You go to the northeast part of Florida. You have districts four and five. District four is Nassau County with sections of Duval. And then again, literally worse. The, the most egregious like thing I can see on this map of Florida with the districts. You have District 4, and then they cut a little hole in the bottom of District 4 and shove District 5 in there. District 5 being Duval County, being the city of Jacksonville. Mm -hmm. And in both of these instances, the smaller district, which is literally kind of like cut into the bigger district, voted Democratic senators. The larger districts voted Republican senators. There you go. Yeah. And and just, again, like, to give up my point, I don't think the idea of drawing lines and redrawing lines is a bad idea at all. No, you need that. As populations change, you need that. But I just can't help but wonder if these lines were a little bit more on a grid, how results would look. So we the thing is, we can talk about that. So you mentioned District 13. I just pulled up the, the demographic profile of District 13. We're doing this shit live. Um, now, imagine that Boston example that I gave a few minutes ago. Sure. Where it fits cleanly geographically, but it's 30% affluent whites, 70% poor black people. Because their neighborhoods are divided by, you know, whatever it is. The railroad tracks, if you want to get cliche about sure. things. Um, and someone might argue, okay, well, why don't we gerrymander it around... By the way, this person who is arguing this is well-intentioned, maybe, or racist, or both, or stupid. Um, but 
here's the point. Someone might argue, oh, well, if we gerrymander the district so that that affluent white section gets a representative and those poor black people get one or two representatives, depending on population, um, that's okay, isn't it? That, that'll work. That means each of those populations is being represented. First of all, that's bad logic because that only takes into, into account one form of representation, or I guess two if you're looking at race and class, which are frequently tied together. Sure. The fucked up in this part is, I, is me looking at Senate District 13 in Florida because when I look at the voting age population of that group, Non-Hispanic single-race whites make up 56.4% of that population. The rest of that population, which again, less than 50%, we've got non-Hispanic black people, 8.6. We've got Hispanic black people, 1.7. We've got Hispanic, excluding Hispanic black, 27.6. We have non-Hispanic other, 5.7. We've got black, including Hispanic black, 10.3. We've got Hispanic, including Hispanic black, 29.2. Mm-hmm. When you run the relevant numbers together, obviously making, making points for the exclusions there, you have a district which is comprised of almost 50% non-white people, but the voting population is more than 50% white people. Mm. What happens there? That means that those affluent white people, you district enough of districts like this where the white po- where that white population is just over that 50% margin in enough of those districts, you have almost 100% white representation. You have those white people voting in representation that they agree with such that you have almost entirely white representation or voted in by white representation despite the fact that the population of that larger area might be close to 50% non-white. Right. That's one of the sinister ways that this kind of gerrymandering works. There's a really crucial um, and illustrative graphic that I'm going to make a request for you to make a note that I find this and and post about it. But if you look up gerrymandering gerrymandering on Google and do an image search, like the third one down is titled How to Steal an Election. And it shows a grid that is 60% blue and 40% red and it shows an even distribution, which then would mean an overwhelming five out of five blue overwhelming victories. But then it shows a fucked up way you can cut the pie chart to make it so that three red win and two blue win, which means for anybody counting that is a red majority. Mm-hmm. And that is what fucking happens. Exactly. Yeah, no, that is exactly what the fuck happens here. Bringing it into current times, we just had our midterms. And it at, at time of recording, all the votes are not yet counted. It does look like Republicans have picked up some shit. However, there was this argument that it was going to be a giant red wave, that they were going to get 40 more representative seats. At time of recording, I think they've so far gotten eight more. Like, it's not, it's not the big giant red wave. Now, 
a lot gets talked about on one side of the aisle about stealing elections, about things like voter fraud, which sure. is not real. Dad, it's not real. <laughs> That's a personal note. Um, a lot gets said about the idea of, you know, stuffing ballot boxes and shit like that. And that's also not real. The ways that elections get stolen are this shit. It's things where you might get a certain representative who wins with a okay majority, 60% of the vote. And then they redraw the district map so that that person's district is now overwhelmingly the other party. Right. While we're talking midterms, you know, a lot of this is implicitly talking about Republicans. I do want to be clear. Democrats do this shit, too. Democrats are absolutely guilty of gerrymandering. They're not guilty of gerrymandering in the same way as Republicans in this last election. But that does not mean that they do not also have a tremendous history of doing this shit. And I have gone on record more than once saying we need to hold all sides to a certain account. Sure, of course. We absolutely do. It is important. So there are solutions to this that have been pointed out. Some are not so great, like the idea of just putting a straight grid down. That's, again, I don't think that's a good idea. I really, really don't. Um, because it ignores a lot of the ways in which we need, we're not positively affirming certain kinds of representation. Sure. It is, it is a fascinating result of the experiment of representative democracy when you have a district drawn in let's just say a city and half of that district represents um let's say the chinatown in a given city and another half represents say um a an area with significant hispanic population representation that's very very interesting because there you will have a place where there will be a very interesting back and forth of what really constitutes democratic representation of these two groups that will have different cultural interests and will have some of the same cultural interests. Um, that's cool. That's that's like political nerdery <laughs> that I'm no that I'm super into. No, I know. I see that you're super into it, which is what is just so charming. Yeah. I'm not sitting here saying that um, because we have this highly segregated, highly ghettoized form of urban representation in terms of neighborhoods that we should live with that and draw our districts around that. I'm not saying that. That's not the point. It should be taken into account, but it's not the main factor. Hell, there are organizations that have written computer algorithms to try and find the most effective ways to logically balance geography, demographic representation, economic representation, um, representation. Like, it is weird when, say, the business districts of certain cities, which don't have high populations, sure, they're mostly office space. It is weird the way that those are sometimes represented in the in in this. 
I'm not saying this to try and disenfranchise one group or another, but you can algorithmically find a balance between these things. Hell, if you work hard just with, you know, your head and the right bits of information that you pull from a fucking census, you can find logical districting. It's not that difficult. A lot of districts do it just fine right now. Not every state and county and district is gerrymandered. Sure. Some of that has to do with how competitive they are. Frankly, the more gerrymandered areas are the ones that are politically advantageous to do so. But again, across both sides, we're dealing with this. At the end of all of this, I talk a lot about the flaws of this political system. Mm -hmm. Hell, I did two episodes ago. I basically said the constitution on which this nation is founded is fucking bullshit that needs revising. Sure. The culture of gerrymandering needs revising. I say that even when redistricting works. I'm not even going to say it works in my favor because I don't consider Democrats representative of my political thought. But it works against the favor of the people who are working the most hard against me. Sure. I say it even in those cases because right now what we have are multiple systems in which we are really not properly representing ourselves. Our representative democracy, our democratic republic, does not properly represent the people in place. And that is by design. Gerrymandering is one piece of this pie. Anyone who tells you that it is the biggest problem in our political system, I think is not coming with a holistic view. I think they want one simple thing that they can focus on. The nice thing about this show is I can take, you know, the 30 minutes, whatever it is, for a topic, and I can focus on one particular issue. This is part of a larger matrix. The, the Constitution is part of that. The Electoral College is part of that. The, 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 the blank passes that we give to certain aspects of governmental structures, I'm talking about the police system, I'm talking about the carceral state, I'm talking about lobbying. All of these things are one giant fuck-off matrix. Gerrymandering has been around almost as long as this nation has been around. Much like the Constitution, it's something that needs revision. We are now at a place that is better than ever before to properly handle that. Fair. We have the we have we have the computers to do it. We have the ability to submit partisan maps to third party review. Third party independent review. And I'm not saying computers are perfect. Algorithms have the biases of the people who program them. But it does not change the fact that if you come to this situation in good faith, if you come to it with an idea of setting forth district maps, representative maps that properly represent populations without regard as to whether or not it is going to positively affect your guy or their guy. And you just do it with the idea that, okay, we're going to try and make this a little more democratic. We're going to try and make this a little more representative. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, that is the best thing. That is the course of action. And it's something that we should be, we should be calling 
the representatives we like out on out on this and we should absolutely be calling out the people that we dislike we should call out the hypocrisy of anyone arguing a stolen election on a gerrymandered map and that is one of the first place places i would go to when someone makes that comment it is not insurmountable if you hold people's feet to the fucking fire to something we have never been good doing as a nation. Yeah. We suck a little. but uh, Shall we get to our question? Let's go ahead and do that. Just to end this on, on what I think will be a high note. Certainly an amusing note. An interesting note. Okay. So while I read the format, I am also going to go ahead and read our relationship question from relationships.txt because you do not know what it is. So listeners, we are getting Alex's reaction live on the air here, which I love. I'm terrified. Is there any way to legally enforce no cheating while dating? I've been dating my partner for close to two years, and we're not considered common law yet in Ontario. They're insecure about me cheating. So I was wondering, is there any legal document that can punish cheating? For example, if I have to pay a certain amount of money if I cheat or something like that. Just wondering if this exists and if so, what it is. Not looking for relationship advice, only legal advice. Thanks. I'm going to go ahead and say you're going to get some relationship advice here as well. (laughs) So... We have a question, is there a way to legally enforce or punish infidelity in a relationship? So we need a name. We do need a name. And Andrew, this is one of the worst questions we've ever gotten. <laughs> I know, I love it very much. Uh, Do you ever watch Ally McBeal? A little bit. They, they make fun of Ally McBeal in, in Futurama, but it was basically... Hot, sexy lawyers. Single female lawyer having lots of sex. Hot, single female lawyers um, screwing each other in the courthouse bathrooms and, and sexy legal drama. The the concept of p- putting legal precedent on infidelity feels like a lawyer thing. So I would like to submit our, our asker, the Allie McBeal... Okay. Played by Callista Flockhart, which wouldn't... So, so going to gender bend this as we, we normally do, but that would make our our couple, Allie McBeal and, and boyfriend, on-again, off-again boyfriend, Richard Fish. Okay, so we have Allie... And Richard. And Richard. For this man to say that he's addicted to love, addicted to sex, addicted to infidelity, lying and cheating, for this man to come in here parading his penis like like he should qualify for handicap parking? Andy, this is bad. <laughs> okay. Like I said, I, 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 I appreciate the sort of naive attempt to say, no relationship advice, please. Just answer the legal question, which again, I feel like the real this real world person is a lawyer. I feel like they have to be, because that is some- Here's the thing, I don't think they are, because a lawyer would know the answer to this fucking stupid question. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Although, you know what? Admittedly, they're Canadian. I don't know Canadian contract law. <laughs> I can say that, okay, I am not a lawyer, 
I'm not. I know some lawyers. I know a little bit about contract law, which mainly comes from the tiny, tiny, tiny bit of legal training that I've gotten in my current career. Here's the point where it comes to contract law. Um, I'll answer your question, Allie, and then I'll go into how stupid it is. Um, yes, you and your boyfriend could sign a contract, get it legally notarized, filed, the whole shebang. I'm assuming that contract law in Canada works similarly to how it works in the United States. You could sign a contract. You could sign it on a fucking napkin. <laughs> sure. That says, like, if you cheat, you're going to need to, like, pay something or some other. Right. And if that contract is subsequently violated, if you cheat and you don't fulfill the contract by giving up the money or whatever the fuck else, um, your boyfriend could legally sue you for breach of that contract. Mm -hmm. Now, there are some stipulations there. The contract does need to be reasonable. You can't say something like, Oh, if I cheat, then I will be your slave or I will pay you $900 billion or it, it does need to be considered reasonable or it will get thrown out in court. Okay. But it is legally possible for you to, let's just say the contract says, I, Ally McBeal, if I cheat on you, Richard, I don't even remember your last name. Um, I will pay you a sum of no more uh, of uh, no less than ten thousand uh, dollars within thirty days of confirmation that it occurred. Uh, sign it, date it, notarize it, file it with the clerk of courts. You're good. Yeah. And then if you cheat, your boyfriend can then go. All right, you owe me ten thousand dollars. You say I'm not going to pay you that ten thousand dollars, and he can sue you, and he can present in court. This is the proof that my that you cheated on me. This is the contract. This was your signature. This was the notarization. And the court goes, "All right, this is all well and good. Case closed." Or they might throw it out because it's stupid contract, Allie. <laughs> the most fascinating thing to me is the concept that this is like. Like, Richard presents an insecurity about Allie cheating, and Allie's thought is to then try and get into legal technicality and and punishment. I mean, Allie, Allie might, might be of my people. Batismed. <laughs> you, you know what? Fair enough. Um, Jesus. Here's the point, Allie. Could you legally do this? Yes. Should you do it? No. It's fucking stupid. Yeah. Because at the root of this, you're not addressing the actual point. When someone has trust issues, the important thing is not to give them some kind of, like, punitive form of reassurance. Mm -hmm. That doesn't deal with human relationships. Human relationships founded on trust need to be built on things like mutual respect, communication, working through the discomfort and fear in a positive and affirming manner. You know, there are people who make jokes after they get married and they're like, oh, yeah, no, we're together and, you know, it'd be real expensive for you to get rid of me. I've made those jokes before. I think you have, too. 
Can't say. If not, you've, <laughs> if not, you've heard it, sure. and you haven't just heard it from me. You've heard it from other people. Right. Um. That that's a recurring joke around marriage. Um. In hindsight, maybe it's not that great a joke, but there are definitely people who treat marriage, especially non-prenup marriages. Um. And, and you know, I got married without a prenup. Um. I have no intention of my marriage ever ending. I did, I never saw a need for one. Uh, no disrespect to people who do. I think that's a perfectly valid thing. But the point is, there are people who treat their prenup or, or pe- people who treat their marriages like it's like it is a hook and anchor, like it is something where, oh yeah, if you go, I'm going to make this hell for you. Well, or like it's an answer to the question. The most fascinating thing to me, they they cite that they're not yet considered common law in Ontario, which tells me that there is no plan at least at this point for a marriage one could bend one's mind into a way to say that the document that punishes cheating is a marriage contract with a prenuptial agreement but he's ali is looking for something else which is it's just very interesting to me Beyond that, the biggest issue I take is, and the thing I want to know is, we don't know why, after two years, Richard is displaying an insecurity with cheating. Mm. You'd think of that if this was something that was an issue from the word go, there would be more research looked into it, or it would be a situation of like, hey, I've got a new partner. This is a, you know no longer quote-unquote new relationship that is just now exploring this sort of thing. Well, I mean, we don't know anything about Richard. Could be that, right. you know, for all we know, Richard had someone in his life recently get cheated on, and that's, and you know, Richard is hyper-fixating on that. Sure. It, does, it still doesn't deal with the fact that if you, if you are in a committed relationship and you have a fear that your partner will cheat on you, the points you need to make are communicating that and then working through that, asking for reassurances, not asking for culpability. Because mm. there's a version of that. There's, there, there's a version of a person who will hear that advice and go, all right, so I need to talk to my partner and we need to work out a plan where they're checking in with me every few hours so that I know they're not cheating. Like, I'm not saying that because that's not trust. Yeah. If you're committed in a relationship with someone and monogamy is important to you, it needs to be built on trust. This is one of the reasons why I get really, really annoyed with monogamy as a default way of looking at things because people assume committed relation committed monogamous relationship i shouldn't need to worry about this shit no monogamous people need to be deliberate about that it requires trust and communication and if you don't have that trust in your partner whether it's because they earned that or not you need to deal with that or the relationship does not fucking work. Yeah. So, Ali, you need to talk to Richard and more importantly, Richard needs to talk to you and the two of you need to work through these trust issues in an affirming way because if the only reason you're, like, 
If the only reason you're getting married or the only reason you're signing a very stupid contract is so that someone feels better about the idea that if they don't do something, they're going to be, or if they do something, they're going to be punished for it. That's not the basis of a good relationship. That's the basis for buying Twitter. <laughs> so, sure. Allie, Richard, for the love of fuck, talk to each other, you idiots. Yeah, talk to each other. The there There is no legal advice to give here beyond the very clinical idea we presented what what is really needed here by ali is in fact relationship advice that relationship advice being you need to have a much deeper conversation get to the bottom of why this is so important to richard deal with y'all shit the only the, the only other middle ground is like if you want to come up with some sort of non-actually binding but in more of a like kink sense contracts that then y'all do you you don't probably you probably don't need to get that one notarized but the, no. the thing that is required here is a conversation about trust and what is reasonable to trust one's partner on in the immortal words of the late and wonderful mitch hedberg we don't need to bring ink and paper into this <laughs> absolutely so, we wish Allie the best. I I don't know if this relationship can go on much longer uh, with or without that conversation. But, you know, who's to say really? Again, we live in America and it's entirely possible Canadian contract law is a thing. The only other thing I can say is adultery is a legal crime in North Carolina. So that's fun. Ugh. But... This has been Love-Hate Relationship. As you can tell, we love to take bizarre and um, sometimes nonsensical relationship questions and point them out as bizarre and nonsensical. If you have a relationship question, whether or not you feel like it's bizarre or nonsensical, you probably feel like it's very serious. We are looking for those. We are happy to answer those. We are happy to give our perfectly unqualified real advice to those and to be real with you about whether or not you're proposing something absolutely insane and to give good intention advice when we can. And if you're looking for that good intention advice, you can send your questions into love hate relationship podcast at gmail.com where we always read them. That's right. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or even TuneIn Radio. Hey, Mom. Uh, you can also rate and or review us on any and or all of those platforms. They tell us it helps people find the show, but what the fuck do we know? We've almost done 100 of these. Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> um, you can also follow us on Twitter, at least for right now. <laughs> Still, uh, we'll we'll talk at LHR Pod. That's L H R P O D. Uh, you can follow us there. Keep up with what uh, we're posting as far as new episodes are concerned. Keep up with just topics of discussion. It hasn't completely devolved into Simpsons memes, but there are more there. Simpsons memes. <laughs> um, you can also send us your questions there. Uh, again, that's at LHR Pod. That's right. You can find my other podcast, Cult Fiction, where I watch cult movies with the uh, incomparable Stephanie Johnson. 
everywhere you can find love-hate relationship. You can also find it on Twitter, but when, like we've said, Twitter might not exist by the time this episode comes out. Who the fuck knows? If it's still there, you can find me, Andy Bowell, at Jovocop2113. You can find my miniature hobby art page at Andy's underscore minis. I have created a Mastodon account, but I don't know what to say to link to that yet. Oh... <laughs> <laughs> uh... And he told me about Mastodon last night, and I don't know how I feel about it. So it, I will continue to say, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok and Chess.com and LieChess. Um, really, just talk to me more on Chess.com and LieChess. Those are my favorites. Um, at A underscore X underscore R-U-I-Z. Thanks for listening, y'all. As ever, please, tell your enemies. Tell your enemies.